From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. So I think that what maybe what COVID has done um, is forced us to embrace that, you know, mortality is a part of life. Um, and, and there are things that are beyond our control. And um, the more that we are prepared, um, the better things can go. And it's going to be a hard time, but it doesn't need to be, you know, any worse than it, than, than it already will be. That's Stephen Buchanan talking about advanced care planning and how having those conversations can help empower patients. We'll hear more from Stephen, as well as Steve Wardell, in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors. A strong financial foundation is critical for any healthcare organization. With Allscripts Revenue Cycle Management Services, you get a robust, end-to-end revenue cycle solution that improves reimbursement processes and offers access to advanced analytics and reporting. With the right partner by your side, get on track toward a healthier financial future. All scripts can help you reduce the cost of care while building a healthier community. Learn more at allscripts.com. It's all about you this fall. Accelerate your path to medical practice leadership. Be empowering. Be influential, be exceptional, be a leader. Join us in San Diego, October 24th through the 27th at the Medical Practice Excellence Leaders Conference. Or join us for our digital experience, November 16th through the 18th. Visit mgma.com mpe21 and register today. Our guests today are Stephen Buchanan, MD, co-founder and chief medical officer, Ascension Health ACO, and Steve Wardell, MBA, chief executive officer, co-founder, Iris Healthcare. They're here today to talk about difficult conversations, four key results from advanced care planning. Steve and Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. You got it. So I'm going to start with Stephen and just get some thoughts from you uh, that you could share with our listeners about what's been going on with you for the last, oh, 15, 16 months, where your main area of focus has been, what you have been really, uh, what problems you've been trying to solve out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, my name is Stephen Buchanan. I'm a practicing palliative medicine physician. I've been uh, in this field for about 20 years or so. And, uh, and during the pandemic, um, I've, I've continued to see patients sort of on the front line from, from day one, both in their homes, uh, in the hospital, as well as in my clinic. Uh, that's what I spend a minority of my time on. The majority of my time is, is here with Iris. Um, and we provide advanced care planning for people with serious illness, that has, we've been busier than ever. Um, you know, I think that uh, one thing, something collateral and, and unexpected from the pandemic 
has been, it's really elevated this discussion more than any time in history. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting where this society of planners, right? Like we plan for education, trips, having people over for dinner, we plan for retirement and, and so forth. Um, but we generally don't plan for our health. And because of the urgency that, that COVID has created in all of us, um, and, and a lot of it was at the beginning, just out of fear, right? Like what would happen if something, if I got COVID, if I had to go to the hospital and boy, what I'm hearing on the news and from my neighbors is that the hospitals are full. There's too many patients uh, to be seen in a room. So people are in hallways or in line to get into the emergency room. Um, how am I going to have a voice? I need to think about what I want, what I don't want and communicate that um, to my family members. And because that's what we do, that's what we've been doing for years uh, before the pandemic, um, you know, things have really, uh, it's, it's been much, there's been an overwhelming response to wanting to do advanced care planning uh, compared to pre-pandemic times. So we've been busy getting people and their families uh, the type of conversations that they want or they're looking for uh, for their care throughout the, the crisis here. Mm -hmm. I want to stick with you for just a moment, Stephen, before we go to Steve and ask him the same question. So you mentioned advanced care planning several times. We're going to cover that from a lot of different angles today. If you don't mind, uh, just define, define it for us, that term. What does it mean to you? Uh, give us an idea of that. Yeah, so um, that, interestingly, you know, there, there's still a number of things that haven't been well-defined in healthcare. Um, it wasn't until 2008 where uh, physicians nationally through national associations and societies defined end of life, right? So we've been dealing with it for centuries, uh, millennia, and we just defined it in 2008. We're, we're still at a place where if you ask someone what is advanced care planning, there's not a universally accepted definition. Um, the way that we look at it is this is, again, sort of society of planners thinking through uh, the future, the, the things that you want and, and don't want. So our standard, if you will, is making sure that it's not just the patient, but it's the family members, loved ones, or other stakeholders involved from the beginning, along with the doctors. So, you know, everybody should sort of be on board um, if, from the get-go. And then talking through um, what, what's important to people is they face serious illness. And so what that often means is first disease education, healthcare literacy scores around serious illness in the United States are still abysmally low. And so, you know, oftentimes uh, patients will understand, hey, I'm supposed to get this CAT scan next week. I have an infusion. I'm being evaluated for a transplant. And it's very much in the, in the moment. But if you ask them, hey, okay, you're on dialysis. What do you expect to happen over the next year or three years or something? You get blank stares. So we oftentimes will start with education to help people have an understanding of what to expect. Um, real advanced care planning is like informed consent. You could just make choices about, do you wanna be, have D, do you wanna be DNR or not? 
but then those choices are sort of empty unless, unless you really are competent or understand uh, what that means. So we do a lot of disease education. We then pull out what we call influencers of care. So people with serious illness generally make decisions a little differently than the rest of the population. They're dealing with something, a medical condition, that uh, may not take their life in the next weeks or months, but at some point will. Um, and so, uh, you know, what makes them tick? Is this, you know, do they make decisions around culture or spirituality or family dynamics or financial concerns and so forth? So we wanna understand that. And once we have that background, we walk them through scenarios that they will likely face given their specific illness, right? The path down dementia for a patient and family, very different than a path down late stage malignancy or heart failure or COPD. And so we walk them through scenarios uh, that, that they are going to face at some point um, to understand what's important to them and, or, or not, um, and to iron out conflict um, amongst family members. So, you know, when you get people together to have these discussions, um, it's not just the patients, it might be their adult parents, it might be their siblings, it might be their uh, adult children. Um, even people that love each other a whole lot, these are crucial conversations, right? So they're, they're, the, the stakes are high, feelings are strong, and feelings differ. That is so important. Like we all have different ideas about what we want to happen to mom and so forth. And so as we're having these discussions about future care, what we uncover is a great deal of miscommunication, misunderstanding, and conflict. Again, bubbles up out of love, and advanced care planning is a process where we help iron that stuff out. And then we make sure all those understandings are documented in, in the state advanced directives, like the directive to physician, the medical power of attorney, the pollster out of hospital DNR. That's what we, that's sort of our standard. That's what we mean by advanced care planning. Okay, that was very helpful. Thanks for sharing that with us. Steve, I wanna to turn to you now. Um, give us an idea of where your thoughts, where your focus has been during this whole pandemic era and now that we're coming out of it, what's kind of taken up your mind space and your uh, hours within the day? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I would, I would agree with Stephen. I mean, in some ways we've been um, just kind of holding on and uh, trying to keep up with, with the, you know, the, the really significant increase and desire to, you know, address advanced care planning. Um, and, and, I, and I would say, you know, beyond that, we've had um, a lot of requests to, to kind of help out in more creative ways. And so we've been thinking about, you know, what are different ways that a, um, you know, telehealth-like offering, you know, something where you've got providers that can engage with people um, in important conversations and, uh, you know, from, from a remote place, uh, but have a personalized and trusted discussion with them. What are other areas um, that are sort of, a, you know, adjacent to advanced care planning uh, where we can help them or, or help their family members um, deal with uh, healthcare crises? And so there's, there's been a lot of work on our side to, you know, think through kind of um, uh, beyond even advanced care planning, which we've really seen um, people embrace in a, in, in a whole new way during COVID. Um, uh, beyond that, you know, what are, what are some other areas that 
uh, we can help people maybe while they're in, in, in the midst of a crisis. And so, um, you know, happy to share more about that, but uh, it's been an area of both kind of, you know, uh, uh, focused on uh, expanding advanced care planning, but also focusing on expanding more of what we actually do for patients that are in, you know, the most vulnerable time of their life. Mm -hmm. Steve, I want to stick with you for just one more moment here. Both you and Steven mentioned that there's this has been an increased focus on, on advanced care planning. We're going to talk about that in more detail, but have y'all had time to do, uh, create any data or study the psychology behind that? Is it because we kind of faced mortality during the pandemic? What, what has been the overriding reason for that? If, if you know, your, your thoughts on that? Sure. Well, I tell you, um, I come from, so just to back up quickly, I, you know, I come from a more diverse background, I would say, than, than, than Stephen. Um, and I've kind of worked in, in different fields, and I've worked in different uh, regions of the world. Uh, so I've lived and worked overseas, um, traveled to over 50 countries. And I have to say, you know, our discomfort with not only uh, death, but even aging, in America mm -hmm. is beyond what I've seen anywhere else. I mean, it's just, it's deeply rooted in American culture that we don't want to age and we certainly don't want to think about death. And, um, you know, that, that has been a barrier for um, really being able to address um, important parts of uh, care delivery for patients that are at that point. Um, and, and, you know, engaging in their family members, you know, if people are in denial, it's, it's hard to engage, right? So, um, so I think that what maybe what COVID has done um, is forced us to embrace that, you know, mortality is a part of life. Um, and, and there are things that are beyond our control. And um, the more that we are prepared, um, the better things can go. And it's going to be a hard time, but it doesn't need to be, you know, any worse than it, than, than it already will be. Um, and, and so I, I think that, there may be a, what we, what we feel that we've experienced um, just running a, uh, you know, a, a company that, that deals with end of life issues or, you know, with advanced care planning is just people being able to embrace uh, mortality in general and that um, it's okay to talk about these things and it's, and it's desired to talk about, um, you know, what, 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 what's going to happen. So um, I think that's a, a, uh, an important cultural shift that I think is, um, you know, it's a weighty one. Um, uh, of course, it's not fun to think about death, but it's healthy. It's healthy. To, it's an, and it's important to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did want to follow up with these because of your broad background. Did you ever kind of come to a conclusion why uh, some other cultures, some other countries uh, feel more open about talking about death or aging in a way that we don't in America? Did anything kind of dawn on you there or come, come to you as far as that's concerned? Well, I tell you, we sure love youth in America. <laughs> and, um, and, and I think too, just, you know, while this is changing across the globe, um, it's not typical for multiple generations, three generations to live under one roof. That's very typical in other cultures. Mm -hmm. And I think just, just having grandparents not only be you know people you see on a holiday uh, but people you see every morning and every night um, uh, just help you know helps to understand that you know there are 
seasons to life that aging is a real thing and it's okay. In fact, in some, it's, it's great in some ways. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and just, you know, uh, an appreciation for, you know, how different cultures have evolved is, you know, it's, we, we could spend a multiple podcasts on that. Um, but it's, you know, I, I do think that there's something in that how, just how focused America has been as a young upstart country on, uh, you know, on being, you know, deeply individual and, 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 and we love youth and we love new things. And, you know, mm -hmm. one, one of the things I would talk about with people um, uh, living overseas is just this focus that we have um, where we would have a theme party about the 50s. And then that was somehow different than the 60s. And then the 70s was somehow totally different. And that made no sense to them. You know, this, the pace of change and how we like to refresh and make things new, they found that fascinating. And come to think of it, it is fascinating. It is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. I, as a journalist, I covered the retirement planning space for about a decade and there was no shortage. I think Stephen was talking about it earlier, but people are, you know, fine getting into, okay, I want to invest. I want to buy a house. I want to, you know, build the nest egg, do all those kind of things. But from financial advisors time again and again and again, they would tell me how difficult it was to get many of their clients to talk about those end of life type, uh, you know, whether it's some type of insurance policy or any kind of planning in that direction. And they would tell me stories, uh, just horrific stories about where the family would just put it off and put it off and put it off until a spouse or a mom or dad got too far into dementia or, or just, died and left in a state untended, so to speak, and just really had bad financial ramifications as well as emotional ramifications there. So I've heard those stories. I'm sure both of you have, and maybe we can dig deeper into that in just a minute. Um, I want to turn back to Stephen now. Uh, you and Steve are going to be talking at the upcoming MGMA Leaders Conference, which is going to be in October uh, your topic is on difficult conversations. Um, four key results from advanced care planning. Give us an idea. I mean, we've, we've been leading up to it, Stephen, but why should somebody go to this uh, session? What are they going to learn by attending it? Yeah, well, uh, certainly want to kind of demystify uh, things that, the things that we do. You know, it's interesting. I've been practicing, uh, I'm a native Texan, but I've been practicing here uh, for the last decade. And the doctors that I share patients with from, you know, cardiology, oncology, pulmonary medicine, and so forth, are, are not just colleagues, but friends. I mean, these are people that we've had over for dinner, or our kids play together, or what have you. And after a decade, um, they still, it's, it's not exactly clear what we do. I'm married to a surgeon. If you asked her <laughs> uh, um, what I do, she would have a hard time explaining it to you. I often will get a call for a consult and they'll say, hey, can you, you do what it is you do? Um, and when patients come to see me uh, and I say, hey, you know, it's great, great that you're here. Um, tell me, you know, why you're here. What's your understanding of what we do uh, in the clinic here? And it's blank stares. And, and so that's not just my experience, you know, CAPSI, which is the largest uh, palliative care 
support organization in the country. They're, it's the Center for Advancement of Palliative Care. Um, they are a fabulous uh, foundation society and they have done uh, market analysis uh, over many years. And they just, uh, before the pandemic, produced their latest paper. They had done research both for patients and physicians about a decade ago, and then have done so much in the way of public education uh, and awareness over the last decade, said, hey, let's check in and, and how did we do? We're still, you know, when they look at patients and families or caregivers, caregivers, we're still at a place where most people can't rate or give their opinion on palliative care because they don't know what it is or haven't had any experience with it. Um, and, but if you then explain it to them, what we do and why, um, you know, anywhere from about 86 plus percent of people, depending on the demographic, the age and whether or not they're sick and so forth, say they would want it. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's for patients. When you look at physicians, um, you know, physicians now say, hey, you know, uh, I know how to refer to palliative care. Uh, but then when you dig into the details and you say, hey, when do you refer? Most of them are still referring with less than six months to live. Well, that's hospice, right? I've been taking care of the same patients for years um, and uh, through, through their serious illness. Um, and then when, when you ask them, you know, why are you not referring? Uh, there's a, just a great degree of saying, I'm uncomfortable and patients don't want it. Um, and so, you know, I think through the talk and seeing the results, like some of the results they'll see are uh, satisfaction scores or net promoter scores for patients and families that go through advanced care planning boy, they're a lot better than most industry scores. Um, you know, if you, if you think of a net promoter score of 80 or higher, you know, ours is over 90. Um, and it's, you know, I, so I really want people to take uh, away these, the, the, the um, preconceptions that they have about what it is we do and, and why and how it's going to impact their patients and really want them leaving, looking through a different lens. Mm -hmm. We're gonna cover this more later, Stephen, but I do wanna ask you, are, whether physicians in medical school, nurses in nursing school, whoever the healthcare provider may be, are they getting the education they need to have these discussions, to understand it better? Is there, anything from the academic side or additional training that gets put out there for them? What, what is out there and available uh, so they starting. can have the conversations? It's starting. And, and I think, you know, and you'll hear me uh, talk about this uh, in terms of it's, this is a very time intensive thing to do. Right. And, and, and medicine is not that way. Right. Like the doctors, unfortunately were measured on like, RVUs and our production and so forth. And, you know, if you look at primary care panels, they're seeing so many patients a day that they have to do all their documentation at night. That's what I do. I see my patients during the day and I document at night. Um, and so to interrupt things and have these longer conversations, um, uh, it's, it's very difficult. Um, but there is a recognition that 
people, you know, physicians should be trained in this. I will say, you know, um, we have one of the two newest medical schools in the country here in Austin. It's, uh, it's through the University of Texas. It's the Dell Medical School. Uh, I'm on faculty there uh, and residents and fellows um, from their train at IRIS. So they, they spend time with us. And I'm, I'm super proud to say that uh, within the Dell Medical School curriculum, that they are mandating that uh, their students go through, whether it's palliative care or geriatrics, uh, to start getting exposed to this uh, before they even have to pick a specialty. So it's, we're creeping along that way with the emphasis on the word creeping. Um, there's just, it, it's, not, it's not nearly as widespread as it should be. Mm -hmm. Does value-based care, if you have that embedded in your practice, does it make it easier or it, does it make a difference at this point? What are you seeing as far as fee-for-service versus value-based care and then having this advanced yeah. care plan? Yeah. yeah, so I would say that value-based care contracts um, and that type of, that, that philosophy of practice has um, brought more attention to advanced care planning. And those are our partners. Our partners are all in advanced uh, or, or in value-based care. Um, so more attention to it, but it hasn't brought really more bandwidth for them to be able to do it. Um, uh, so it makes, it makes it good to do, you know, partner up with us uh, because that they can outsource this. So there's certainly a lot more of attention on it. Um, uh, but it hasn't, I mean, there's just nothing has come along and nothing on the foreseeable horizon that's going to say, hey, primary care doc, you know, uh, take an hour to an hour and a half and meet with this big family and they may not all be in your office and just talk about, you know, what's going to happen over the future. Um, even in, even with full risk, uh, that's, that's not going to happen with scale and consistency with any of the current models. Okay. Steve, I wanted to come back to you now. Um, in an earlier correspondence, you've said that unnecessary care delivered to people with serious illnesses is one of the largest drivers of waste in our healthcare system, and it creates poor outcomes for everyone. Um, we all know that we're trying to, uh, you know, get rid of waste in healthcare any way that we can. So talk about that. What does advanced care planning do to help improve these challenges? Yeah, well, you know, we say that advanced care planning is one of the few things that really accomplishes the triple aim as one standalone solution. Um, <clears throat> and it, 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 so it is one of these kind of win-win uh, interventions and there's opportunity there because it's, it's just not prevalent. Uh, it's not done enough. And, and so how does it accomplish that? Um, it, you know, the multiple outcomes, you know, eliminating waste and, you know, improving quality and, and outcomes. Well, main thing I would say is that care becomes more personalized. You know, it's informed by the goals of the patient and, and not just, you know, the patient and whatever they uh, sort of, said yes to, but something that they actually understood and understood in the context of their goals and what's important to them and had that sort of translated translation between what do I really want as ultimate outcomes here and how, does, how do these different um, care choices help me get there? That's a lot of what 
what we're doing. You know, the, the default tends to be let's do everything no matter what, right? Um, sort of a, 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 a fighting, um, you know, mentality. Um, and there's, there's some good to that, but, um, but it, it should be informed by and in some ways limited by is this, this, is this leading in a place that the patient wants to go? And so, you know, so we talk about goal concordant care, right? Um, not just do everything, but do everything the patient wants. Don't do stuff that the patient does not want and is, and is not going to help them achieve their goals. So I think that that is, it, it, sounds, um, it sounds right, and it sounds much simpler than it is. I mean, these are tough discussions, as we've been, as we've been saying here. They are tough discussions. It's, it's hard to open up this discussion. It's, it's hard for physicians to even broach the topic um, because they feel, hey, my job is to maintain, uh, you know, there, there's something more to try. There, there's hope here. Um, you know, there's, um, there's a new pathway that, that we can go down. And they feel that if they even bring up the topic of advanced care planning and life-sustaining treatment and code status and so forth, that it's going to signal to the patient that they're giving up. And so, um, you know, the questions that the patient and family might have that without being addressed actually add to anxiety, they just go unaddressed Um, because they're uncomfortable bringing it up. The doctor's uncomfortable bringing it up. So I would say a huge weight is lifted from uh, the patient and the patient's family. Um, you know, the family, we, we've seen it all the time. Part of the reason I'm doing this um, is that, you know, we have had an experience in our family where a family was left with some really critical decisions for somebody that we love very much. And families shouldn't be stuck with that. It's going to be a hard situation when you're at the end of life with a loved one. How much more difficult, unnecessarily so, is it um, to be stuck making a decision because your loved one didn't say what they would have wanted in that situation? And then to have, I think what Stephen talked about before, um, very natural but, but very strong conflict emerge over that, right? Of course, it makes sense. Um, and, but it, it does lead to bad outcomes. It leads to poor experience, not just for that family, um, but also for the providers, you know, it's terrible for everybody involved when there's a crisis at the hospital and, you know, people are having these agonizing decisions over life-sustaining treatment or, you know, other things that are, that are related to that. So, you know, it's putting the patient in, in the center and uh, making sure that we're not just, you know, getting from the patient, um, sure, if you say so, you know, if you're the doc, if, if you think that's best and, or, Hey, um, you know, uh, uh, family feels like they, you know, that, that I should do this. And so I guess I'll try, but no, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's their choice. It's their health and it's their decision. And they have, they, their goals didn't change just because they got really sick. Things that were important to them before are still important to them now. And so we need to be um, lining up the, their care choices with, um, you know, who they are uniquely as a person and, and their goals and preferences. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. Um, Stephen, I want to come back to you because we keep talking about having these difficult conversations. So when these take place, is there, I don't want to call it a script, but is there a checklist that the provider should have that they work through? Is it more organic based on who they're talking to? And if there are other family members involved, walk us through that. What does that look like? Yeah. Well, I feel 
I sort of feel like I died on the hill uh, trying to get doctors to have these discussions. And I remember, so I went for training in advanced care planning beyond fellowship time to the Gunderson Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And they've created something fairly unique there within the United States, uh, a community that talks about advanced care planning and they've been doing it for decades. And, and they're a faith-based system and it came out of like mission integration and ethics and uh, just wonderful place to be. Uh, and when I went for my training, um, I was, uh, and I shared this with them, I was kind of shocked and appalled that the physicians weren't the ones having these discussions. Um, you know, because I felt like it's our duty, whether you're a physician, nurse practitioner, what have you, um, to do this with our patients. Um, and, you know, after a lot of pain and suffering on my part, they were right. I mean, they had, they, they created that model and I think that they really nailed it. Um, you know, if you look at the data, it's very hard to measure what happens in these discussions. We can measure how often they happen, right? So the, the most recent data is that 96% of Medicare patients uh, that have serious illness uh, have zero discussions with their doctors about this. So, um, so we're able to look at that. Um, there are studies uh, where we've actually recorded physicians going to talk to patients about this stuff. So the doctors knew they were being recorded. Um, there's, there's one where oncologists had a recording device put on them. The patient knew this as well. And there was one purpose uh, for that visit. It was to talk about prognosis. Not even like, do you want CPR or anything? Just, just prognosis. You know, 70% or more of the time, the oncologist couldn't even bring that up, right? And this is their job. Um, there's another study where they recorded uh, code status discussions and the average amount of time a physician took to talk to someone about do they want to be intubated and have CPR and stuff or not, it was less than 60 seconds. Um, so you can imagine how you would feel about that if you were the patient or that was you know, someone that you loved and it was a 60 second discussion on, you know, are, are we going to let you die, which is not what happened, um, uh, or are we gonna put you on these machines and so forth? So, so what we've done to your point uh, about scripting is we've taken that off of the doctor's plate and then we create the state forms as well as other forms for the physician and, and the family to be able to talk through as a summary. And then the physicians can still bill for that, that time spent. But the hard work is done that, you know, they have an idea of what the patients want and don't want, the family dynamics around this and so forth. So it's not so much more scripted as it is prompted, I would say. Uh, but it takes a lot of the stress, a lot of the anxiety, and then a whole lot of time out of the discussion to have that just sort of in bullet points uh, for them so that the doctor and the patient can be on the same page, but the doctor doesn't need to facilitate that discussion or guide it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I want to stick with you here, Stephen. So where are the continued pain points in having this patient communication where 
I guess, for lack of a better term, where are the gaps? What needs to be tightened up there? Yeah. Well, there's lots of room for improvement. I would say that uh, the gaps are, are chasms right now. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, to some degree, it's really not the doctor's fault here. I mean, when you look at um, why do doctors generally not have these discussions, it, it points to three things. You know, number one is time. Um, so these are very time intensive discussions. We've already discussed that. It's extremely hard to fit this in to a clinic day and meet your organization's goals and expectations around productivity and so forth. So can you do it as a one-off? Yeah, of course. Can you do it with scale and consistency? Not really. So I won't belabor that. But the second is, you know, just sort of stress and conflict that comes up. I mean, um, you know, you're in a, like, no matter what kind of relationship that you have with a patient, you're all, already sort of at a loss, right? Like, if, you know, if, you, if you're a family doc and you've been taking care of this person, you know, for 13 years or 20 years or whatever, um, uh, boy, that's hard. That's like discussing it with your parent or a loved one or whatever. And, and we don't like to take time in our day to be emotionally drained, you know? Um, if you don't know them at all, or they're new to you, my gosh, you're like, can I bring this kind of stuff up? So, um, and then there's this sort of, you know, paradox of I'm supposed to be giving you things that are, you know, that you should be taking to stave this off or, or, or try to delay the progression. But now I'm talking to you about something else, which is stopping those things. There's financial conflict there as well for certain doctors and specialists, right? So, um, so the, there's that. And then, the, and then there's the documents. Getting the documents done is so hard. And no, so we don't have a national advance directive. Um, there are a number of societies or people pushing for that. I'll tell you, it is a long way off. Um, so every state has their own set of documents and the states, those documents, I know I've been in the room for those, uh, they're written by lawyers. So they're, they're, the documents are all in legalese, right? Um, if you give them to a patient to fill out, none of them can read them. Uh, I've read them in my states a ton of times and I still feel trepidation uh, over the language. Um, the second is they're generic, right? Like what I would want and what my plan should be would be very different, I think, than yours, Daniel, and so forth. And so, you know, it's, it's just this rubber stamp. And then the third thing is they only talk about what happens when someone's actively dying. The last few seconds or moments of someone's life, um, but we should be talking about stuff way upstream. So, um, you know, I think that the, the room for improvement and, and what we've done around our proprietary documents is when, um, make the language really plain and simple. Um, you know, bit like fifth grade reading level type thing, specific to their illness and their situation and much more upstream, things that people will have to face for months or years before they're actually dying and so forth. So I think that with all those barriers, you know, time, stress and conflict, document creation and so forth, um, there are solutions to them, but we generally don't have those available in the practice. I mean, uh, one last example, in Texas, uh, where I practice, 
it is not legal for me to go through uh, advanced directives with my patient and get them fully signed in front of me and then get them into the electronic medical record. Can't do that. Before COVID, I used to go out in the hall, literally, and pull people in and say, hey, will you help one of my patients and come in and witness this? Um, because I can't witness it, the nurse can't, the secretary can't, nobody that works for the health system or what have you can, can be a witness. Um, and so uh, it just makes this, you know, that, that's why these gaps are not gaps, they're chasms, um, but there's, there's solutions to them. They're, they're just oftentimes not internal. All right, well, thank you so much for that, Steve. And um, Steve, I wanted to turn to you for a moment and start talking about strategic solutions. We've been talking about a lot of the problems and challenges related to ACP. Uh, let's talk about some of those solutions. So let's get strategic for a moment. What can you offer us? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, great, great question. So we, we do need to find new solutions um, or we're gonna wind up with, with the same results. I mean, right now, if you look at, you know, just to kind of in, encapsulate the problem here, CMS finally started reimbursing for advanced care planning, right? So we've actually got um, some national data on this. Um, the most recent uh, look at how prevalent is advanced care planning, uh, at least one conversation, one documented conversation with somebody that, not the whole population, let's just focus on those that have serious illness. Um, it, it's about 4%. 4% of those with serious illness um, have, have had uh, any sort of document, documented discussion on advanced care planning with their physician. So 96% have not. Um, I think that we, we need to understand that in value-based care, the, these are very ambitious goals that we've set for our, for our healthcare system. We cannot keep loading uh, more and more things onto the PCP or the primary treating physician, right? We need to, as physicians, I think physicians need to be open to support. And I think as you know, physician leadership, we need to understand that PCPs can't do it all uh, in value-based care. And to make it work, we need to take a team approach and a um, you know, multi uh, and interdisciplinary approach. And you know, there are areas where specialization makes sense. AC, advanced care planning is one of those. You know, these are not easy conversations. I mean, one of the things that physicians talk about, even if they had all the time in the world, they're not trained in it and they don't feel comfortable having the discussion. And that doesn't change overnight. So uh, having specialists that really become masters at having these challenging discussions and, you know, developing new muscles around um, motivational interviewing techniques and conflict resolution things that are not typically in med school, um, but are important for these conversations and, and can have a huge impact on, on health outcomes and, and care quality. I think it's, you know, we need to be open to multi, uh, multidisciplinary teams specializing in certain areas, uh, so long as uh, it's, it's not a um, disaggregated and uh, sort of random approach to the patient that you know, that they really need to see that there's coordination and that there's communication happening. If they're not having all conversations with, with one provider, which, you know, for people with serious illness is very rare anyways, um, the, the coordination between all those, including if somebody's handling advanced care planning 
on the team, they need to be, they need to also play a role in communicating everything back to the rest of the care team. So I think we just need to be realistic. It takes time. Um, let's not just say, yeah, this is important. Let's prioritize it. PCP, this is now on your plate, one, you know, once again, and assume that we're going to get different results. Um, we need to resource it properly. Okay. Uh, Steven, I wanted to ask you one final question here then. Um, you talked earlier about metrics and measuring this. So how do we do that? What, what are the metrics that we can even look at? What do we need to measure to make sure any of these processes or systems that Steve was talking about, that they're being implemented properly, that we're doing things the right way? All right, I think if you're a practice, um, then there are two things that you can look at. You know, one is how often you're billing for the ACP code using that CPT code. So there's two mm -hmm. CPT codes, they're time-based. Um, and what the national, you know, when I talked about 96% of people with serious illness having zero discussions uh, with their doctors, a lot of that is, is based off of billing for CPT. Um, so, uh, data shows that physicians are aware of that code. Um, I think they're not using it because it's not, it's not happening because they, they, they are reimbursed, uh, well for it. Um, and so, you know, monitoring that CPT code over time at showing, are, you know, are the, uh, docs in your practice making a dent there? The other thing that I think is, is very useful and telling is uh, looking through the EMR and saying, hey, do we have a tab dedicated to uh, advanced directives? So the big um, uh, EMRs have that. So Epic, Cerner, Practice Fusion, you know, eClinical Works, all those things. Um, there's a tab for advanced directives. And so what percent of my patients, you know, actually have advanced directives? And unfortunately, that it, that's still, that's an audit to do uh, that's not electronic because if, in the, if they have a tab, uh, the EMRs can say, yes, there's something in there or not, but it's oftentimes a waste bucket. Um, and so we've done audits with our partners uh, where they've done the audit, so it's their results, where uh, even when it says there's something in that tab, uh, under 10% of the time do people with serious illness actually have those documents all filled out. Oftentimes it's a questionnaire form on do they have advanced directives or not? Well, that doesn't help. Um, people put their wills in there for some reason, like, hey, I'm going to leave, you know, Uncle Ron my motorcycle and, you know, Aunt Margie my china and all this kind of stuff. So, um, so really understanding uh, what percent of your patients have fully executed advanced directives uh, through that uh, EMR, I think is another, a, a second thing that's, that's worth measuring for folks. All right. Well, Stephen, Steve, this has been an important conversation, uh, an eye-opening conversation, and I want to thank both of you for sharing these insights and these thoughts with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. We uh, love to do this, and um, you made it easy. We'd be happy to come back anytime. Yeah, as you can tell, we can talk about this all day, but uh, all day. we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guests, Stephen Buchanan, 
and Steve Wardell. Also, thanks to All Scripts and to MGMA Leaders Conference for sponsoring this week's show. You can accelerate your path to medical practice leadership by joining us in San Diego, October 24th through the 27th at the Medical Practice Excellence Leaders Conference. Visit mgma.com slash mpe21 and register today. Also, with Allscript's Revenue Cycle Management Services, you get a robust end-to-end revenue cycle solution that improves reimbursement processes and offers access to advanced analytics and reporting. Allscripts can help you reduce the cost of care while building a healthier community. Learn more at allscripts.com. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.